Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, good morning. Got your notebooks out. Get them, get them out right now. Let me wave them, wave them. We're going to put you to work right away. If you don't have a notebook, shame on you. You should have been here two weeks ago when we gave them out. Seriously, you can go to the website and download a PDF version of it. Uh, but those of you who don't have a notebook, you can kind of play along mentally because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question here. Those of you who do have your workbooks, somewhere in the notes section for week three, I want you to write down the first couple of things that come to mind when you see this word that comes up there, church. Church. As you think about that word, what, what comes to mind? I actually asked this question to our growth group this past week, knowing that I was going to be sharing on this topic. We went around the room and I asked everyone what they thought of when they heard that word church. And I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word church, but my hunch is it's a far cry from what the people in the first century thought of when they heard that that word. Because from the very beginning, from the very beginning, the church has been a movement, not a building, where people met once or twice a week, sang some songs, took an offering, and listened to a sermon. Because I think that's what most people... Today, when most people hear the word church or see the word church, they tend to kind of associate it with a building. They might, maybe not constantly, you don't think about that, but with a building or things that evolve around the building. And the church from the beginning, it didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin with liturgy. It didn't begin with tradition because originally there weren't any Bibles. Originally, there weren't any banners. There weren't any worship bands. There weren't any of those buildings, none of those bees that we, we see today. From the beginning, the church began as a movement and it centered, it centered around this one very important and profound idea that we celebrated three weeks ago today. I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus that, that galvanized, that motivated those first century believers around this simple idea that Jesus was in fact who he said he was, the Messiah. The resurrection, coupled with the testimony of, of eyewitnesses to his resurrection, that's what helped launch what we today call the New Testament church, which leads us to our main idea for this morning's message. And here's the main idea. You can write this in your books. The church was born as a movement. It's still moving. I'm going to say that again. The church was born as a movement, and it's still moving. We're in week three of our Firm Foundation, Following the Framework for Transformation series. In this series, we're looking at a few things uh, that we're talking about, some of the basic Bible doctrines that will help strengthen our faith and, and help us grow and mature in our spiritual foundation. And we launched the series in week one by looking at the topic of the Bible, God's Word, and how important for us it is to not just read the Bible, but let the Bible read us. And, and, I, and I threw out that invitation, inviting you to join me for a version, uh, a Bible reading plan, a uh, 90-day Bible reading plan, which will kind of coincide with the weeks that we're going through this, this series. Uh, it's on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one, actually nine of you accepted that invitation. So give yourselves a hand. So I, I was impressed by that, that 99 of you, and I guess those of you that didn't clamp, I guess you didn't sign up for that. But anyway, but no, your pastor is thrilled that 99 of you agreed to jump in with us on, on this series because it, it is very important. And then last week, 
Dr. Kent Duncan shared on the topic of the Sabbath rest and why that's important for us to understand and apply. This week, week three of our series, we're going to look at the church. Not the church as many people view it in North America today, but the church that's described for us in the book of Acts, because there's a huge difference between those two realities, between church as it was birthed in the New Testament and church as many people view it today. To begin, we got to look at this word church. Uh, the original word, the Greek word for church, it's, uh, the English transliteration is ekklesia, is how that would be pronounced, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia, and it means literally an assembly, gathering, or congregation. Assembly, gathering, or congregation. And when Jesus launched the church, he launched it as a movement centered around that one idea. It, it, it was a gathering, a congregation, but, but over time, that gradually drifted and, and transitioned from the idea of, of a movement to that of a location. From, from, a, from a gathering centered around an idea to a hierarchy of positions. And so by 300 AD, 300 years after the birth of the church, that little Greek word, ekklesia, transitioned to a different word. It's a German word. And the English transliteration, it would be K-I-R-C-H-E. And phonetically, we, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't translate in English, but it would be church. It would be church is how we would pronounce it. And it is translated the Lord's house. Church was a German term referring to not a movement. All right, don't lose me here. Not a movement, but a place or holy religious, a place of holy or religious gathering. So within 300 years of its birth, the New Testament church had already drifted from its original meaning of a gathering or congregation to that of a location or a building, which meant, which meant whoever controlled the building also controlled the church. They also controlled the scriptures and they ultimately controlled the people. And so over time, what began as a movement of distributing truth and hope throughout the world became a very inward, inward focused, and in some cases, pagan and even corrupt movement that resembled nothing of the picture of the New Testament church described for us in the book of Acts. And some of these things you've probably read about in your history classes when talking about the Middle Ages or the, a lot of the horrible things that were done in the name of Jesus between the Muslims, the, the, the bloodbaths between the Muslims and Christians, the Crusades. Think about this. The Crusades were all launched in the name of Jesus. The Spanish Inquisition was launched in the name of Jesus. And some, some very, very corrupt and very high-profile tragic things happened in the name of the church because of spiritual leadership that went sideways because of this misunderstanding of that word church. And before long, before long, things became so corrupt that people actually felt like they could buy their way into heaven. And the wealthy people felt like they could, they could sin all they wanted and then purchase some indulgences to cover those sins and still make it to heaven. And all of that, listen, all of that happened because of this warped and distorted view of that word church. But then something happened in the 16th century that would begin to turn the tide of how people would view the church. In the early 1500s, an English scholar by the name of William Tyndale set out to translate the Bible into the common language of the people because in that day and age, in the 16th century, people had to go to church to listen to a priest read from the Latin translation of the Scripture that the average person couldn't even read. So William Tyndale, and here's a picture of, of William, and you notice that Willie's not smiling. 
but if you knew if you knew his story, you'd understand why Willie's not not smiling. Willie was a linguistic scholar, and he decided that it was time for the average person to have access to the Bible. Because remember, if you control the Bible, you control the church, and you control the people. Tyndale decided that that's not right. He felt like all people should have access to the scriptures. So he began to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into the, the language of the people, English which didn't endear him to the church leaders. In fact, the church leaders basically put a bounty on Tyndale's head, and he became somewhat of an outlaw, and that's why he's not smiling in that picture. And he had to leave England, so he fled to Germany, where he continued to do his translation work. And then God in his sovereign plan... By the way, are you liking this history lesson? You need to, you need to understand, my graduate degree, when I went to seminary, it, it wasn't for pastoral ministry. It was theological historical studies, which is just an academic way of saying church history. So you need to understand, your pastor doesn't get very many opportunities to, to unload this plethora of church history on you. So I'm unloading today, all right? So anyway, Tyndale was eventually betrayed by a friend, brought back to England, and he was tried for being a heretic, branded an enemy of the church, and was hanged. And to further make a statement as if hanging him wasn't enough, they also burned his body. So they didn't want him dead. They wanted him dead, dead, all right? But it was too late. It was too late because now the word was out. English-speaking people had a copy of the scriptures, and the church, the institutional church, the church that thought in terms of location and control of people began to lose its power because average people could actually hold a copy of the scriptures themselves. But one of the things that really upset the church leaders about Tyndale's translation of the Bible, it wasn't just that he translated it into the common language of the people. When he came to this word church, he didn't translate it that German version, he went back to the original Greek ecclesia, right? So he took it back to the original meaning because that's what it meant. It was a gathering. It was his attempt to restore the meaning of the word church back to what it was meant to be in the first place when it started out in the first century as a growing mission-centered movement of people with a very simple message for everyone in the whole world around this one single event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church was birthed as a movement. It wasn't about a building or positions or liturgy. It wasn't about any of the things that, it, that would evolve uh, over the next few hundred years that followed. It would become and continue to be a movement as it is even still today. About 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, right before he ascended into heaven, he, he, gathers, he gathers with the 12. Actually, there are 11 now. They, they would replace Judas later. But uh, so he gathered with the 11, and then there were some others there as well. We know his mother Mary. Uh, the Bible says his brothers were there, uh, probably his sisters, and then others as well. And he gathers them on a hillside right outside of Jerusalem. And this is what he tells them in Acts 1, verse 6. It says, So when they met together, they asked him, asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they weren't thinking in terms of a growing, gathering movement that we would call the church. They were thinking that Jesus was going to establish that, that kingdom, all right? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, we don't know what they thought, but we're thinking they probably thought power. Well, you know, power is a good thing, right? It'd be good to have power. So, so what, what, what do we need this power for, Jesus? He tells them. And you will be, as a result of this new power that you're going to have, and you will be 
my witnesses. That's a little Greek word that basically means the same thing that we think of when we think of a witness in a court of law. What does a witness do? A witness goes on the stand and swears to just tell what they saw and heard, right? Just accurately share, tell what you saw and heard. And that's what that word witness means as it applies to the church. He says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is, which is where they were, in Judea, which, which was the, the broader area, and Samaria, which was an area they didn't even like to go to because they didn't like the Samaritans, Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. And then after saying that, Jesus ascends into heaven, and this little group of 100 to 120 people went back to the city of Jerusalem, and they began to meet together and pray together often. Then, about two weeks later, something amazing happened. It happened during the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of those celebrations or festivals where, where all the Jewish people would return to, to uh, Jerusalem and gather together for a celebration. It's kind of like Passover celebration, but it was called Pentecost. And we find out later in the book of Acts that there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism from all different regions of the known world at that time to celebrate this Jewish holiday of Pentecost. And the scripture tells us that there were about 120 of these folks having a prayer meeting in the upper room in Jerusalem. We know Jesus' uh, uh, mother Mary, as well as his brothers, other apostles were there. While they're praying in this upper room, while they're praying, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit showed up, and in their midst, in a very powerful way, just as Jesus predicted, well, let's read about it in Acts 2, verses 2 to 4. Suddenly, after they'd been praying in that upper room, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That's kind of weird. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, time, this, this is not a cop-out, but I'm just being serious. Time doesn't allow me to elaborate on this miraculous event, specifically this speaking in other tongues. There are some. There are some, many in fact, who will tell you that the tongues was the supernatural ability of, of some people to, to suddenly speak in the native languages of all these people that had gathered from all these far regions, okay? And that's true. It was that. But it wasn't just the known languages. We know that there were also unknown languages that were being spoken. How do we know that? Look at verse 13 of Acts 2. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much fine. Wine. Folks, you don't make fun of someone because they're speaking a different language. No, there was clearly something else going on here. There, there was a language going on that, that, that they didn't understand. And again, I, I, I don't have time to elaborate on it, but that's for another sermon. But I just want to be very clear about that. And then all of a sudden, in the city square, in the midst of Jerusalem, there's all this energy and all this excitement. And about this time, Peter decides it's time for the very first sermon in the church because this was opening day of the church, right? We've had opening day of Major League Baseball, you know, a couple weeks ago. This was opening day for the church. So Peter stands up after this miraculous outpouring took place and this, these miraculous events are going on. Peter stands up and begins to preach the very first sermon on opening day of the church. Acts 2, verse 22 and 23, people of Israel, and, and now this is Peter speaking to all these people who are just kind of mystified by the fact that all these Galileans know, know these different languages. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you because many of those in the crowd, they had been in Jerusalem for years. Okay, so they, they knew about this. Signs which God did among you through him as you 
yourselves know. In other words, he said, you, many of you have seen, you saw him. You saw him do a lot of these signs. Verse 23, this man, this same man was handed over you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, keep in mind, Peter's referencing some, some very recent history, all right? This is, this is only about two months. Think about this. This is only about two months after the crucifixion. So when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, many people in that audience, they would have known who he's talking about, all right? I'm sure there were many in the crowd. Many of them probably heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. Many of them might have been touched by him. Many of them might have had a relative that was healed by them. My point being, they pretty much all knew who Peter was talking about here, all right? Acts 22, or Acts 2, 23 and 24. And you, again, he, he drills down on this. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So basically, basically, Peter just preaches the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then verse 32, Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life, and then here's our word, and we are all witnesses of this fact. We are all witnesses. God has raised him to life, and we're witnesses. It's exactly what Jesus said. We're not simply giving a testimony of what Jesus taught. And look, if you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian and you're still trying to figure all this out, this is an important part of understanding Christianity. These first century believers weren't simply teaching what Jesus taught because Christianity wasn't about embracing a teaching. Christianity from the outset was about embracing an event in history, and that event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything hinged on that resurrection. And they said, we are witnesses of the fact that he was crucified. A lot of people saw that, and we are witnesses of the fact that he came back to life. Not years ago, just, just a couple months ago. Just a couple months ago, we are witnesses of these things, of that fact. And then verse 33 of Acts 2, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That's what these languages, that's what the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about. This whole thing's from God is what Peter is saying. And then verse 36, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, and, and again, now he, he gets really personal again. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, and he's pointing his finger at the Jews. So some of you accused him. Some of you walked away. Some of you didn't support him. But he has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And a hush falls over the crowd. Then finally, someone cries out in verse 37 of Acts 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what do we do? Based on what you just said, what do we do? What do we do with that? And Peter replied, Attend church regularly. If you didn't laugh, that's because you don't know your Bibles because that's not, what, that's not what Peter said. I just made that part up. Remember, this is opening day for the New Testament church, but many of you, when you think of church, you know what you think of? You think, attend church. You think, you know, I haven't been to church in a while. I need to get back to church. Yeah, we need to get the kids going to church. I need to get my family in church. Here's my point. On opening day, 
those types of statements wouldn't have made any sense. Would not have made any sense at all because the church was a gathering of people around a very simple message, a single event. And there was momentum and there, there was a dynamic and that there was that, that message that was to spread throughout the entire world. And here's what Peter actually said. When the people said, brothers, what do we do? After Peter preached that sermon, this is what he said. Verse 2, Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then here's the promise, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he went on in verse 39. The promise, this, this gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children and for all who are far off. You know who's far off? You're far off. I'm far off. That's who that's for. That's who that's for. It's for you. It's for me. It's for our children, for our grandchildren. This was Peter's way of saying, this isn't just a Jerusalem thing. This isn't just a this generation thing. This isn't just an us thing. This thing that has begun in our midst, this message, this momentum, the supernatural power that we've seen today, this whole thing is for us, our children, and for all who are far off all who are far off geographically, who are far off chronologically, all who are far off spiritually. This, this is something that's going to reach beyond our lifetime. That's what he's saying. Because remember, remember, Jesus said this. He said, and the gates of hell or the gates of death will not stop it. Talking about this movement. This generation may die, but the church will continue to thrive. This isn't an event that's going to to. to you know, touch just people that are far off, people who haven't been. This, this, this is an event that's going to touch people for generations to come. Verse 39 of Acts 2, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then after that sermon, they had their first altar call. And here's how the crowd responded. Acts 2, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. 3,000 people. Remember, this is only a couple of months after the crucifixion. There, there were plenty of people present in the crowd that day who they could have said, wait a minute, time out, time out. Right, here, follow me right outside of town. I'll show you where he was buried. Someone could have done that, but no one did that. You know why? Because he wasn't buried anymore. He wasn't in the grave anymore. He had risen from the dead. In the very city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, over 3,000 people said, we believe, we believe. And 3,000 people joined the church, a movement, not a building, the ecclesia. And they were all baptized. Do you know how long it would take to baptize 3,000 people? <laughs> Especially the way we do it here. Because, you know, we have photo ops and we have people read a little thing there. You know, we'd have to have, you know, food catered in, you know, all afternoon, you know. The point being, the day that the church was introduced to this planet, it made a huge impact, huge impact. And it's still impacting the world today, 2,000 years later, because it's not a building. It's not a building. It's a movement, a movement centered on the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since opening day, since day one, there's always been a remnant, a group of people that, that understands that this is a movement 
that, that needs to continue to keep moving. Since day one, there's always been missionaries. There's always been Bible translators, Bible smugglers, preachers, evangelists, people who have served, people who, who take in the poor in Jesus' name. Even here at Family Church, you get this. Many of you get this. If you're, if you're new here, this is why when someone is baptized, this is why we cheer, cheer them on, because you get that. This is why you attend a growth group, because you understand when you meet in groups that you are the church, you are being the church. And whether you ever step foot inside this building again, when you attend a growth group or when you serve on our Helping Hands food pantry distribution or when you're changing a dirty diaper back in the nursery, you are the church. You are being the church, keeping that movement going forward. You serve coffee to someone, you're being the church. So, so I don't know what comes to mind or what you feel when you hear the word church. But I hope as a result of today, it may be a little bit different. And I hope as a result of today that you never, ever allow yourself to slide back into thinking that the church is a place or location because it's not. It's a movement. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. See, living here in North America, we actually have a hard time recognizing this because we're living in the midst of it. So I think we, we can't appreciate just how much the church has impacted our culture and our society today because we've grown up in it. This is all we've ever known. So we don't, we don't realize how much our values and our understanding of right and wrong has been impacted by the church. Quite a few years ago, the Chinese government commissioned some of their best and brightest sociologists to research Western culture and why Western culture was so successful. Because at the time, China was wanting to be a world player. They weren't, they are now, but at the time, they weren't really a world player. And they were trying to figure out, well, why is the West so successful in, in all these areas? So they, they hired their best and brightest sociologists. And they studied this for years, almost a generation, all right? And, and this, was, this was their result. Listen, listen to the, their, their findings. This, this was by a Chinese sociologist who spent years researching the secret sauce of Western culture. This is what he said. We studied everything we could from historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was your military, the fact that you had more powerful and bigger guns than we had. And that, you know, that, that, that was a simple explanation because after all, the bigger your guns, the more powerful your economy and the more widespread your influence. So at first we thought it was, we thought it was your, your military. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. And then next we focused on your economic system. But over the past generation, we discovered that the heart of your culture is your religion, specifically Christianity, specifically the church. This is China people, doing an objective study of Western culture, trying to determine what is it? What is it that makes us so successful? And see, we hear that and we're like, really? Because we don't even think we're that good of Christians, right? We don't even think that we, you know, we were that good of influence. Listen to this final quote of that article. The Christian moral foundation of the social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. In other words, they're saying it wasn't just your capitalism. It was the fact that you had capitalism with a conscience. Where did the conscience come from? It came from the church. It came from the church. Not only that, these same, and this is, this is really amazing, those same sociologists that researched the West, when they studied their own people 
And they had certain pockets and areas uh, out in, in rural and in, in, uh, desolate areas where uh, they, they, they would call them traveling evangelists. We would call them missionaries. But in certain parts of China where these missionaries, these traveling evangelists would go around and establish, establish little ecclesias, little groups, right? Little, little Christian groups. In areas where that happened, opium addiction dropped, crime dropped, and those Christian families that were a part of that movement lived a more affluent lifestyle than those outside of the movement. I'm telling you, folks, the church is alive, it's well, it's a movement, and it is impacting the world. You have no idea how important the church is, how important you are. You are because you are the church. And what you do does matter. Can we be a part of continuing to reshape and reshape our to shape and reshape our culture? Absolutely. We need to be. We need to be. And I want to conclude with this. The nation that tried to eliminate Christianity from the beginning, the nation that tried to get rid of the church, I'm talking about Rome, is now in some ways the epicenter of Christianity. Did you know that there are more crosses and more places to celebrate Christianity in the city of Rome than any other place in the world? The very city where they tried to snuff it out and kill it. Now, in some ways, it's the epicenter of Christianity. Why? Because the church is alive and well. Because this message is powerful. Because it shapes people. It shapes communities. It shapes countries. And it has the potential to shape the world. And if ever, if ever there was a time for the church to ramp up and amp up our message and be engaged with our culture, with our schools, with our neighborhoods, and with our communities, living out these biblical truths and values, it's right now. It's right now. The church was born as a movement, and against all odds, it's still moving today. The church makes a cultural difference that the things that we love and the freedoms that we enjoy and, and the opportunities that we have as Americans, see, we, we, we want to chalk it up to a, a bunch of other things. But no, those on the outside looking in say, no, 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 no. The secret sauce of your success is your church. It's Christianity. It's a system that values men, women, and children. It's the church. So application. What do we do with this history lesson? Huh? Good question. What do we do with this history lesson, right? We do what Jesus told that first gathering. We go out and witness to others about the hope that can be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the church, if the church is about influencing the world with the teaching and, and values of Jesus, what are some ways you can begin to do that? Not just on Sunday mornings, but when you get outside these four walls. What are some ways that you can begin to be the church? Ways that you haven't before. Pray about that. Invite God into that conversation, and he'll show you. He'll show you. Because that, that, that's where that influence is needed. You know, we don't need it in here, right? It's needed out there. It's needed out there. So regardless of what your view of the church was before today, going forward, I pray that you would... Have this different take on it, this different view of it now. Bow your heads and let me pray for you. Lord, I do pray that, again, whatever our view of the church was before, that, that from this day forward, we would recognize the church as a living, breathing movement, a, a movement that you have entrusted with us, that you gave the keys to the kingdom to your church, us. A movement that has the answers that the world is looking for. So help us, help us be better stewards of your church, of its message 
and its purpose. And if you're here this morning, you're far from God, but maybe you've experienced something of his love and grace. (laughs) Somehow through this history lesson, God has kind of drawn you close to him. And you know you're not right with God and you want to be right with God. It would be my honor to lead you in a prayer. I'll just lead you in the words, but it's not the words. It's not the power. It's it's, it's believing it in your heart. So if that's you, if you would just pray this simple prayer with me, say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I I, I know that I'm broken and I can't fix myself. So I pray that you would forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, for my sins, and help me to begin to live my life for you from this day forward. Reveal to me your plan and purpose. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And use me in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.